Good morning. I hope you're all well and thank you for joining us this morning. I'm excited to have the opportunity to be with you all three times over the next couple of weeks whilst Graham's away. During this time together, we're going to study the book of Philippians, which is known as the Epistle of Joy, a New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to get together this morning and to open your word. Father, thank you for every person listening. We pray that we are blessed as we study the Bible right now, that you use this time to grow us in our faith, our understanding and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Who does not want more joy in their life? What is joy and where does it come from? If you are a reader, or if you've browsed the shelves of a bookshop, or maybe even scrolled through the charts on Amazon, you would have noticed that the best-selling books in our generation are self-help books. Books that claim to have the unique missing ingredient on how to live a perfect, happy, joy, contented, filled life. These books are consumed by the enthusiastic pursuit of happiness, written by motivational speakers that all uniquely claim to have their own secret key to happiness. But for many people that read these books, the door of happiness never opens. These books almost always rely on positive self-talk and they set the impossible challenge of having the reader somehow take control of their external circumstances. But when their job, relationships, car, holiday, money, things, fail to make them happy. They dump it and move on to the next new and improved self-help book promising the latest, best-selling breakthrough technique in this never-ending pursuit of joy and happiness in the world. If you have chased joy through pleasure and things, it's easy to come to the same conclusion as Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or maybe like he writes later, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. Maybe you can recall a time in your own life, I know I can, a time being very much on the track of seeking joy and fulfillment in external things, to the point where we could have just had the most wonderful family holiday, and whilst on the plane on the way home, we are already beginning to feel joyless as we think about the week ahead going back to work. So we start planning our next holiday to give us that next temporary fix of joyfulness. Many people describe this exact feeling in their Christian testimonies as a Jesus-shaped hole, where they've spent a season or maybe their whole life trying to fill their, you know, their, 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 this hole within their heart, this satisfaction, this joyless peace within themselves with things. Maybe you can recall the time when you were at secondary school, and if you were like me and my friends, you are counting down the days to get to that milestone age where you can apply to get a provisional driving license. For a season, this would have been everything. Then on that special day, the postman arrives and delivers the post. And there it is, an envelope from the DVLA. But by the way, as you get older, you don't really want to be receiving any letters from the DVLA because it's not normally good news. Years of anticipation. You look at it and within seconds, you've got the provisional driving license in your hands, the joy fades because now you just have to have driving lessons. 
Driving lessons happen, then of course, it's all about passing your test. You pass your test and you are joyful until you just need to get that first car. Then you get that 20 year old little car and it's the best day ever until you just want something a little bit newer and maybe with a better stereo. A process that quite frankly, if goes unchecked, will continue until the day we die. That's not to say that having a nice car is necessarily a bad thing, of course, but we just simply understand that the car, the provisional driving license, or the really loud car stereo isn't the source of real permanent joy. Life is like a vapour, and so is our joy and contentment when we source it from the wrong place. Another example, you may have in your sock drawer an old phone that you don't use anymore, but for a season, maybe it was the best thing since sliced bread. Maybe you were even one of those people that queued up outside Apple on the day of release when it first came out, and now it sits there replaced by a newer model in your sock drawer. If happiness is a fleeting feeling and elusive, the biblical understanding of joy is not. Biblical joy isn't a temporary attitude dependent on external circumstances. It is rooted in a deep confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. It doesn't depend on disappointment, on pain, on failure, on freedom or rejection. Instead, it's established through the faith that we have in Jesus by God's grace, our eternal hope of salvation. Joy, of course, is a gift from God and at its very essence springs from a knowledge that we are eternally secure in Christ by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Unlike the temporary happiness that we can begin to chase, this is a rock solid truth for believers in Christ that no one can take away and it doesn't rely on any external conditions to maintain. In John chapter 15 verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples that the things he has spoken is so that his joy may be in them and that their joy may be made full. Simon Peter wrote in his first epistle, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Of course, the circumstances in which Paul the Apostle wrote this letter, Philippians, and also the recipients of the letter, the church in Philippi, were not the type of typical scenarios that you would expect to produce joy. Paul wrote this pastoral letter to encourage his beloved Philippian congregation whilst he was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard um, to prevent him from escaping whilst he faced the reality, the very, very possible reality of execution, yet his heart still overflowed with joy. You would have found none of what Paul experienced in the 30 years prior to his imprisonment written in or recommended within the pages of those self-help books that we just mentioned. Since his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul had received relentless opposition in every single direction. As early as Acts 9, we read how Paul had to run and escape for his life by being lowered into a basket at night time. In Acts 14, he was stoned and left for dead then a few, verse later, a few verses later, he was thrown into prison in Philippi. Many, many accounts of ridicule, avoiding plots to murder him. After being shipwrecked even, he then here at this point of writing this letter, ends up in Rome awaiting Emperor Nero's final decision, remaining full of joy, rooted 
in his faith of Jesus Christ. Also, the recipients of this letter also had its fair share of problems. Its members were extremely poor and also, just like Paul, they were being persecuted for their faith. We read in chapter 3 in Philippians that they also were being attacked by false teachers and also had an internal feud between two members of the congregation that was disrupting the unity of the church. And the location of the church is really interesting, especially for those of you that like history. The church was located in Philippi, which was a Roman province, which was an important city in eastern Macedonia, located in Greece. It was important because it had running right through the middle of it, the famous Roman road, which was, the route, uh, which was a land route between Rome and Asia Minor. Although of no benefit to the financially poor congregation of Philippi, the city was also known for its gold mine, which is what attracted the interest of Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon, which is where the city Philippi actually got its name. Also, for those of you that do like your history, this region was the site of one of the most crucial battles in Roman history, which was the birth of the beginning of the Roman Empire, after Octavian and Antony defeated the Republican forces of Brutus and Cassius. It was shortly after this that the Roman Empire settled many of their veterans at Philippi, which was then given the prestigious position of becoming a Roman colony. Of course, being a Roman colony meant that Philippi had the same legal status as cities in Italy, so therefore all citizens in Philippi became Roman citizens. It's a fascinating story as to how uh, Paul got to Philippi and how it became the first church that Paul planted in Europe. So for some context, let's turn now to Acts 16 verse 9. And of course, as we lead into this verse, we read that Paul has been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to teach the word in Asia Minor, which was Turkey, as he made his way through Galatia. And as Paul arrives in Troas, we pick up the narrative in Acts 16 verse 9. This is the Bible speaking here. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And of course, this was the first church in Europe. And of course, this is Luke writing in the book of Acts. There's also an excellent exposition of this passage here um, on studytheword.co.uk that Graham did. Um, it's also on the Facebook um, page for PEFC that was put on there on Monday. If you have time later, definitely tuck into that. It's an absolute feast of, of all the detail and context of what we're talking about right here. So without further ado, turn with me to our passage today in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. So we start off. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. So of course, we've already discussed here Paul being Paul the Apostle, the author of this epistle as well as 12 others, 13 epistles within the New Testament. And here he's talking about being with Timothy, who was his young, beloved son in the faith, his co-worker, his co-laborer, bondservants of Christ Jesus. And I just find this so fascinating. If you've ever watched a, a, any documentaries on prisons, one of the first things that you'll notice is that when a, somebody who, who's in prison is being interviewed, they'll be fantasising and just talking and focusing on their freedom and talking about what they're going to do when they become free. You know, go to a football match and see their family and go and have their first McDonald's for, for 20 years. But here, Paul willingly knows that, <laughs> how amazing it is to actually be able to call himself a bond servant, a willing bond servant of Christ Jesus. 
He continues, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers who were the elders and the, the pastors and deacons, grace to you and peace from, and this is where it's sourced, the peace and grace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, here he's writing to the church in Philippi and he's calling them saints. The saints that Paul is writing to here are all believers, all believers, not a special person that has achieved religious greatness. All believers are saints and not because we ourselves are righteous, but instead because believers are in Christ Jesus, whose righteousness is imputed to us, to all who believe. We continue in verse three. I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. What a brilliant posture in prayer. I thank my God. Thankfulness is the posture that we want to be coming to the Lord in as we pray, right? To have a thankful heart. And he says, in all of my remembrance of you, and maybe as Paul writes this, he's thinking back to how he was led by the Spirit to Macedonia, like we just mentioned. Or maybe he was remembering the demon-possessed fortune teller that went around following Paul everywhere he went for days, annoying them and shouting out, these men are bondservants of God and have come to proclaim the way of salvation. Maybe he is remembering how this then led to Paul spending time in jail, but then led to the jailer and his family hearing the gospel and becoming saved. Or maybe he's thinking about the generous financial support from the people of Philippi that continue to help support the needy believers in Jerusalem. In verse 4, we continue, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Not only here are the recipients for the Philippians a source of joy to Paul, but to be able to come as believers to pray and to speak to God, the creator of the universe. Because of Jesus, powered by the Holy Spirit that lives within us, we can come and spend time with him whenever we want, and he wants us to as well. We don't need to make sacrifices or to set up an altar as New Testament believers, but instead we can come to him and not out of an obligation, but out of a freedom. Now that is joy. Verse five, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul here recognising that the Philippians, having a living faith, working together, having fellowship with him, working, labouring in proclaiming the good news of salvation through personal evangelism, also, I'm sure he's also speaking about the financial support as he alludes again to this later on in chapter four. They are fellow partners with him in proclaiming the gospel consistently over many years, just as we as Christians are called to do today. He continues in verse six, for I am confident of this very thing, and this is brilliant, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. One of the reasons why external circumstances cannot alter a Christian's deep joy is because of the anticipation and the confidence that we have in what is to come. And also the understanding of how temporary everything is in the world that we're living in right now. Salvation is entirely and completely the work of God. Our sanctification, which is the process a Christian goes through upon hearing and being justified, saved, is perfect, perfected by God. Now, How reassuring is that? And that is thankfully not down to how much good work we try to muster up after being saved. But instead, it is God whom is perfecting our faith. And we can be confident that that, that he who began a good work in us will perfect it. 
You may remember in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes to the group of churches in Turkey and he said to them, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And of course, he was addressing the point here that they believed the gospel. They believed that you were saved through, by grace through faith. But then it was being distorted and then they was adding circumcision and works to their salvation. The day of Christ that Paul mentions here in how this verse ends is an expression referring to when believers will be glorified. This is the final part of a believer's sanctification, when our salvation will be completed and made perfect. The God who begins is the God who finishes. In verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The word defence here, this is the Greek word apologia. This is where we get the word that we use today for apologetics, to give a speech in defence of. And we know that there was a very real need to defend the real gospel message of salvation by grace through faith, as there were many false teachers coming into these churches, corrupting the real gospel, just like there is today. How do you defend and test anything? Through scripture, through the 66 books of the Bible. We remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. A defense of that which robs believers of genuine biblical joy. We see this in scripture time and time again, don't we? We see these two different approaches in our relationship to the gospel. Offense and defense. We are called to play offensive by being proactive and proclaiming the gospel, by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and to tell people of the hope that we have in him. And like we see here, we have at times a need to defend the gospel by going back to scripture and making sure that we do not get led astray by the many false types of false teachings that infiltrate the church. We stand strong on biblical principles, the truths that are contained in scripture. Of course, that does not mean that every theological difference is a hill to die on. And it's possible that in any sound Bible teaching church setting, that there will be different convictions on a number of secondary things. But here, Paul is talking about the absolute non-negotiable gospel message. So let us let Paul speak for himself here. And, and we'll flick forward to uh, Philippians chapter 3. But before we read from verse 7, a little bit of context. In the previous verses... Paul has just listed an impressive resume of honourable Jewish deeds and facts that if anyone was keeping score here on earth thinking it's possible to save by good works or because of their heritage, then you would have been really impressed by Paul. But here, Paul states from verse 7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I account as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Nothing to do with our good works. It's all to do with how good, how perfect Jesus Christ is and the fact that he imputes that to us when we become believers. 
It could not be clearer that Paul knows and is given a warning in verse one of chapter three in Philippians that we'll get to. He says to them, watch out for the pigs, talking about these false teachers. Watch out for the gospel distorting false teachers that will corrupt the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And how does he want us to do it? It's right here in verse nine. And I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and in all discernment. Paul is encouraging them that as they grow in their knowledge and discernment, that an outworking of this will be their love. That will be the sign. Paul's passion for the spiritual development of the believers in Philippi wasn't only seen in his preaching, his teaching and writing, but it's also so evident in his passionate prayer life about them. He isn't praying out of a legalistic duty to pray, but he's praying out of love, out of joy, a desire that they will grow in their love, their knowledge, their faith and their discernment. To know the real gospel and to know the real one well enough that they can discern between knowing what is real and what is counterfeit. To discern between a gospel that saves and a gospel that doesn't. If you want to know how to spot a fake £50 note, it's really important that you've seen a real one. Otherwise, how can you tell? This is why it is so important that we are students of this amazing book, that we know it, that we live it, that we understand that this is so much better than any of those best-selling self-help books. This is the real source of joy, and it points to the one who provides it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be together online as we opened your word and remind ourselves that you are the generous provider of all the good things, Lord. And we thank you for the joy and the hope that we have in our lives as believers today. We pray for the kings as they enjoy their holiday together. We pray that you keep them safe and healthy and that you recharge them whilst they're away. Thank you for this church family, Lord, and for the many blessings that you pour out onto us daily. In Jesus' name, amen.